Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It certainly is great to be back on the air with you guys, and I know many of you were were kind of beginning to wonder, you know, it has been a while since uh, Kirk was on the air last, and, you know, when is he going to come back on the air? Well, I can tell you that I've uh, been busy lately, but then again, who hasn't? And as I've said before, and I'll say it again, that uh, life doesn't always revolve around uh, podcasting. As much as I enjoy it, I also know that um, there has to be a balance and other things uh, do take precedent. And that's just the way life is sometimes. But luckily, I do have some free time today to where um, I figured why not just take advantage of uh, being able to get into podcasts now Um and uh, not have to wait and do it, say, tomorrow or another day, uh, given that some of you are uh, kind of anxious to know, okay, where are we going to go next in this uh, series that we're doing, uh, being the victory with no name, uh, the Native American defeat of the First American Army by Colin G. Calloway. I will tell you this in this uh, next uh, podcast uh, segment episode, uh, we're pretty much going to be talking about the victory with no name. And I'm sure many of you are probably beginning to wonder at some point, you know, yes, we've been learning everything there is um, to know about the lead up to this eventual battle. But when are we going to actually learn about it, the actual battle itself? Well, we're going to talk about it in today's uh, podcast segment episode. In other words, we're going to learn just how... um, deadly this battle was and we're not talking so much by the numbers well on one hand we could talk about numbers but how it was deadly for one side and how for the other it was victorious and not just so much deadly for the side that lost but how the the style of warfare that got conducted which ultimately contributed to such uh, deadly casualties for the um for the defeated. So uh, let's uh, get ready to go and uh, be prepared um, to uh, to learn about um, more information behind uh, the victory with no name, uh, the, Na- the Native American defeat of the First American Army by Colin G. Calloway. So let's get the show on the road. So here's our first leadoff question here. Come the morning of November 4th, 1791, where did the U.S. Army population stand along the confines of the Wabash River. You know, if I recall, when um, General Arthur St. Clair began this um, mission, he, he had around about 1,400 men total. He had more uh, militiamen than he had regulars under his watch. But if I'm not mistaken, we did learn from the last time I was on the air with you guys about uh, a timeline that started from mid-September until the early beginnings of November 1791. We basically learned how there was lots of desertion. Uh, There was lots of, um, what do you call it? Well, I should say a lack of cohesiveness. Uh, There was a lack of um, discipline. There was a lack of... um, structure it, it got bad to the point where there was one incident if i'm not mistaken where an officer was um drunk while on guard duty i mean it's bad enough that the officer was drunk on guard duty but he was setting a bad example for those uh, below him uh serving uh, under his uh command so uh, that officer obviously had to be sent to uh, fort pitt uh for um 
for his uh, punishment. And then, of course, we uh, learned about how um, there were uh, visitors who came and went, uh, most notably uh, women whom uh, supplied uh, soldiers with uh, drink or, you know, I should say alcoholic beverages to the point where it caused a lot of uh, problems with uh, public drunkenness or, you know, drunkenness in general. So this whole breakdown in structure uh, with supplies not getting in where they were supposed to be and uh, soldiers even having to sleep on muddy ground, it just, you know, it's one thing to have a, an army, but how can you have an army when there's no proper structure or there's no uh, proper means of respect, uh, no means of uh, setting good examples for those um, serving below you? If you don't have any of that stuff, then how in the world can an army function? So the answer to the question, though, is uh, come the morning of November 4th, 1791, where did the U.S. Army population stand along the confines of the Wabash River? The population of the army, that, that is those uh, troops whom were readily available, stood less or just shy of around 1,100 at best. Maybe, um, historians say about 1,080. So we're looking at between 1,080 and 1,100. And we have to keep in mind that um, General um, Arthur St. Clair had over 1,400 men. So around that, so within this time frame, folks, he's lost about um, just over 300 men whom have deserted men and some men who have been too ill. But he's lost men by the numbers. Some men have been... Um, have been attacked by Indians to the point where they've lost their lives and others were taken um, as prisoners. So, you know, it's one thing to still have an army of about 1,080 or 1,100, but when you've lost around 300 or just over 300, it's going to be hard to fill in those gaps. It's not like General um, St. Clair can call up uh, Washington. Um, well, the capital hasn't relocated just yet to Washington, D.C. Uh, in 1791, the capital's in Philadelphia, but it's, you know, General St. Clair doesn't have a telephone, folks. He can't call up uh, President Washington and say, hey, I'm in a bit of a real bad bind here. Uh, my numbers have start, are starting to dwindle. Is there any way you could send a, a reinforcement of, like, say, another 500 or 1,000 troops that can come over here within a day's time? We just don't have the technology or the means right away to... Um, be able to resupply um, as quickly as uh, we would like to. But that's where uh, the situation now stands, is that given that the numbers have dropped, you know, sharply, General St. Clair uh, could really be stuck between a rock and a hard place. Now, the 1,080 regulars and militiamen of the main army were stationed in two parallel lines roughly 70 yards apart along terrain that overlooked the Wabash River, which included getting surrounded by forests. Okay, so they are under the assumption with the strategy that they will be protected. Well, yes, it's one thing to be, um, to be uh, surrounded by forests and all, but the the challenge, or I should say the big problem, is that it's one thing to um, assume that you are uh, safe when you are in the confines of the forest. And when you're marching or you are navigating your terrain, you don't always know what's hiding behind the trees. You know, it's one thing to see a tree in front of you. It's one thing to go past it. But you never know what trees 
further up a cliff or further up uh, the terrain, uh, regardless of how the terrain structure is, you never know uh, who might be lurking behind you in trees nearby as you go. And once, you know, say, for example, like, you know, Indians have all have always been known for guerrilla style fighting, and they were uh, so in the French and Indian War, uh, especially at um, Monongahela uh, in western Pennsylvania when uh, General um, Edward uh, Braddock's forces were annihilated uh, because, for one, he had been warned about the uh, style of fighting that the enemy had been engaging in, and two, he needed to um, reinvent things by not uh, relying on conventional tactics. But And this was advice from Indians whom were considering aligning with British and Braddock didn't take their advice. Washington, George Washington himself knew about irregular style fighting and even gave suggestions to Braddock. Braddock didn't even listen to those below. Braddock was being a micromanager, trying to do everything on his own without the advice of those from the outside and those below. And he um, met, he and his forces met deadly uh, consequences. Um, just, um, Maybe close to a thousand men were killed by Indian and French forces. Those whom survived escaped because of George Washington's leadership. Washington survived. He, he took over the command of uh, General Edward Braddock, who was shot at Monongahela, lost his life. And this was in 1755. But Washington um, knew the actually knew the terrain very well, and was fortunate and wise enough to be able to. Uh, find uh, ways to get those whom were not already injured or uh, wounded by uh, bows and arrows or uh, muskets and rifles, probably more so muskets and rifles, because by then Indians were using, um, I think had pretty much abandoned the bow and arrow. But the bottom line is that Washington was able to um, escape along with those whom, whom were spared. But the bottom line is that it's one thing to navigate through uh, the forests, but don't assume that once you start navigating your way into a forest that you'll come out alive. So, yes, there are a thousand regulars and militiamen of the main army stationed in two parallel lines. In other words, they don't touch each other. They are in the same direction, 70 yards apart and surrounded by forests, but that doesn't mean that the enemy... Um, is hiding somewhere where a guerrilla-style ambush attack could happen, and the numbers for the U.S. Army could be so severe in terms of loss that that they would never know what would hit them. I mean, I'm not trying to give this away, folks, but just know that this is, you know, it's one thing to go into the forest, but don't ever assume that, you know, you might come out alive, unscathed. So November 4th, during the morning hours, and of course, uh, it's easy to sometimes assume that, okay, you know, morning hours, we think of like 8, 9, 10 a.m. No, in this case, it's morning hours prior to uh, sunrise. So November 4th, via the morning hours, saw uh, the U.S. Army troops engaged in basic march and drill instructions. Okay, well, that's good. You know, it's good to practice uh, daily or march and drill instructions. But the sad part is, is that, you know, for all that practice, you know, it's not going to be enough in the end to um, be prepared for what's going to lie ahead. Because uh, what's going to lie ahead, 
is going to be something that many of these men have never, ever dealt with in their lifetime. So the army's right wing is going to be led by uh, General um, Benjamin Butler, which consisted of battalions. And uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with what battalions are, they are larger troop units. So the right wings, the army's right wing being led by Major General um, Benjamin Butler is going to be uh, consisted of battalions, uh, the large units along the first line closer to the Wabash River. The left wing is going to be led by Lieutenant Colonel William Dark. Um, Captain William Faulkner's Pennsylvania riflemen stationed on the uh, right flank. Of course, when we think of William Faulkner, who do we think of? That famous uh, poet from the 20th century. So don't get confused, folks. Uh, but anyways, we have a Captain Jonathan Snowden. His dragoons are on the left flank. And whenever we hear of like flanks, uh, think of rear sides protecting the center, the main line. The Kentucky militia are camped across the creek 300 yards ahead of the main army. So remember, folks, you know, not everyone's together right away. The militia are separate. But even 300 yards away um, doesn't mean that even the militia themselves could be spared. So I think it's time now to, um, to ante up things here. Okay, yes, we've got a strategy. We think it's going to work. But just because we have a strategy, it doesn't mean that we might come out on top. Prior to the sun rising on November 4th, a handful of soldiers began hearing the loud sounds of yells throughout the woods, forests. These yells, or I should say cries, sounds of fear, are brought, were brought on by the Indians. These weren't your basic 101 yells, folks. These were probably yells that went somewhere, well, they obviously went well beyond 101. They probably, on a scale of 5 to 10, were probably 5 or greater in terms of, um, in terms of the pitch, in terms of the sound that these uh, Indian warriors are making. These aren't your yells or cries that you might have like at a traditional ceremony. These are yells that are meant to scare the living daylight out of an enemy. Not only, say, another Indian tribe that there could be issues with, but really for outsiders who simply have no business being in their territory. And, of course, who are the outsiders? Not just the U.S. government, but the American army. In other words, the Indians know why the American army's in there. The army's in there because they want land. And not just land, they want Indian land. What do the Indians want? They want to preserve their heritage. They want to preserve their customs, traditions. But they also want to hold on to their land. And they sure as hell are not going to go without a fight. Even if the Indians did lose, they're going to lose like men. They're not going to just drop down their weapons and say, okay, we surrender, here you go, here's your land, take it, it's yours, we'll go uh, further west. No, that's not how we're going to play this game. So, yes, if I was a, a soldier and I heard the yells and cries of the Indians, these cries and yells representing sounds of fear, yeah, it would scare the wits out of me if I had never heard something like this before. To me, this might be the equivalent of a 
of something that might be heard sound-wise from a horror film movie of sorts. So, for the Indians, these yells, cries, sounds of fear, they are brought on by the Indians. The militiamen get frightened. They are frightened to the point where they simply cannot defend their grounds. Why so? Because of how quick the enemy has pursued them, being the, being the Indians. The Indians didn't come up from them like from the front folks. You know, the forests, that's where the Indians are, are hiding. They're not hiding, all, not all of them are hiding on one side of the forest, folks. You know, you could be out in open terrain, but you've got forests to your left, forests to your right. Forces could come at both ends and attack you from the center to the point where, where you have no escape route. So that's really what, it, what this game plan now is for the Indians, is to cut off the militia's escape route. So, so the militiamen are running, though, for their lives. But, you know, but in doing so, <laughs> they're going to end up uh, messing up some things. What are they going to mess up? They're going to mess up Major um, General Benjamin Butler's entire large army unit, including part of Major John Clark's battalion unit, creating disorder and confusion. So it might be fair to say now that Major General Benjamin Butler and Major, Gen Major John Clark's um, forces, including those two individuals themselves, they may have heard a sound, but maybe they didn't hear it as loud and intensely as the militiamen did. And believe me, if, if you're running at full speed and you're shouting at the top of your lungs, oh my God, the Indians are after us, the Indians are after us, then it could mess things up for those other um, army units. Lieutenant Colonel William Oldham, he was uh, the Kentucky militia commander for just over a month. He was sadly killed in the line of duty, folks, while trying to stop his militia forces from running for their lives. So it was bad enough that the militiamen started running for their lives, but did anyone from above tell the militiamen to run for their lives? No. This is where we've had problems with structure, folks. This is where we have problems with soldiers not showing respect towards their office, their commanding officers. This is where we've had soldiers just come and go as they please. They, there is a complete lack of um, us, we, ourselves. And for those officers whom are trying to instill the us, we, ourselves mentality, no matter what they've tried, it just doesn't seem to work with, this, um, with the men serving below. Perhaps these are not the same kind of men whom really have what it takes to um, be out in a battlefield. Of course, even in the early days of the American Revolutionary War, Washington, you know, not to get off track here, folks, but even George Washington himself at the battle of at the whole New York uh, battle campaign, uh, which was a debacle, but even um, in one battle, there were men running for their lives to the point where Washington had to come into the middle and pleaded with them to turn back around. And it got bad enough to the point where Washington said, are these the men that God gave me to fight the world's mightiest empire? I think that's what he said. In other words, does, for, for George Washington in that scenario, did he have men 
or boys fighting. In other words, you know, it's one thing to be a man and know how to fight, but if you don't know how to fight or are just so scared to fight, then to me that seems like being a boy. Uh, not trying to sound um, difficult, but forward, you know, say 10 years later after uh, the surrender of Yorktown, now we have to think to ourselves, my gosh, now we're starting all over from scratch. Are these the men that that the government, you know, for any of these officers out here, they're asking themselves right now, my gosh, are these the men that the government gave us to fight? Um, a band of warriors whom, whom not only know how to fight, but fight in ways that we were never trained nor prepared to ever expect. It's a lot of uncertainty, and it's coming at them so quickly that they just don't know what's going to um, unfold within a matter of minutes, or what has already begun to unravel is only going to get worse. So, sadly, yes, uh, we have a lieutenant colonel in William Oldham, whom is doing everything he can to get his unit back in line, only to be killed in the line of duty by um, Indians chasing the militiamen. And I'm beginning to wonder, too, do Indians play by their own rules? Sure. It's, you know, for Indians, it's not just the soldiers they'll go after. They'll go after those from high above. And when you go after those high above, then you can really eliminate structure all the more. Although Major General um, Benjamin Butler's unit had demonstrated resistance towards the Indians' onslaught from the initial beginning phase, and they had, and this was done just in the midst, just right before the Kentucky militiamen start making their way up into his line and you know running for their lives, uh, Benjamin, Major General Butler uh, did have some uh, temporary success in halting uh, the Indians' onslaught. But little did uh, Major General Butler know that Indians were going to be coming in all different directions. Because shortly thereafter, the Indians rallied. Thanks to, listen to this pronunciation, folks, Wapakomagat, a Mississauga Ojibwa chief from Canada, Mississauga, Ontario, in case some of you are wondering about the Mississauga part. Yeah, there is a city in, uh, Missis in Ontario known as uh, Mississauga, and I know that because uh, through uh, having worked in uh, transportation, uh, given that, I've, that I work in transportation, I have uh, handled uh, various shipments originating out of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada, and delivering into that uh, town. So whenever you hear Mississauga, you think of Ontario, Canada. So thanks to Wapakamagat, uh, Mississauga Ojibwa chief from Canada, he, this man helped oversee his men, or I should say warriors, crush militia forces. And uh, in whatever they could get their hands on with Major General uh, Benjamin Butler's unit. Indian forces checked, were checked from the front line, that is they were uh, kind of put to a halt, the front line being the center, but those Indians whom lied roughly about 60 yards from the creek launched a counterattack where warriors had wheeled left and right only to surround the U.S. Army in a very short time frame. So in other words, by wheeling left and right, you're forming like a dub double envelope. You're cutting off an, 
you're cutting off the most essential escape routes. You are pretty much blocking off every known path there could be to um, even conduct a hastily retreat. Now that this has happened, the U.S. Army and the militia, what's left of them, are now going to be in, it's pretty much now every man for himself. In other words, how am I going to fight? And if I can fight, how long of a fight can I put up? How long can the rest of my comrades put up a fight? Because we don't know what is, what's going to be coming at us next, and we're dealing with people whom, whom don't fight the way we do. Let's find out more. Uh, a captain by the name of John Buell, he wasn't present when the militia were routed, but he learned from other officers present at the moment of the all-out assault how Indians targeted militiamen like a swarm of bees. You know how like you know, bees can come, not just two or three, you might have a swarm of like five or more coming. Well, these bees, well, the Indians, being like a swarm of bees, they emerged so quick from the woods that American forces simply just did not have the time nor the measures for how to respond instantly. Okay, what I mean by measures is that how come American troop forces didn't um, split um, units into into what you call smaller groups. In other words, it's one thing to have maybe a, a group of a hundred, but would you want to put all hundred men out in one um, in one section? Probably not. Sure, you know, ten or fifteen could be attacked out of nowhere, but for every man that gets attacked, wounded, killed, think about all those whom have not been shot. They're now in gr in a greater stage of panic. Yeah, they, yes, they could retreat, but their retreat might not be a smooth one. They could all be going in different directions to where they might run the risk of uh, further onslaught, uh, the greater means of being taken prisoner of war, greater means of getting wounded, being held, uh, and not just prisoner of war, but perhaps being held as a uh, captive, to where once you become a captive, you might never get returned back um, to, your, um, to the party you were um, affiliated with. So, to me, I, when I read this book, I, you know, thought to myself, my gosh, couldn't, you know, even during the American Revolutionary War, we were, you know, adopting guerrilla-style techniques. Why wasn't this applied? Did we just get this assumption that, oh, you know, the Indians don't know how to fight and they'll uh, surrender as soon as they see this mighty army force come at them? You know, it's so easy to think that just because we have a new United States government that we're mighty, we're strong. We're not. You know, we're still trying to, um, we're, we're still, you know, we've already, yes, made some great steps in instituting uh, the first tax on uh, whiskey that helped collect revenue to pay um, various outstanding debts. Yes, we still have other uh, financial-related issues, Yes, there is still partisanship in, in the early existence of our republic, but do we even have an army that's unified? No. And do we still have people out there whom are opposed to standing armies, even in times of peace? Yes. And now all of a sudden, you know, there, there's no declaration of war, folks, but yet we've sent um, forces into the Northwest Territory thinking that we're just going to crush 
the um, Indians only to be met with um, deadly force. In other words, we never really um, took what we maybe learned from the Revolutionary War from a long-term approach and applied it to a setting that, on one hand, maybe we didn't think we would ever have to face, but now all of a sudden, you know, now that we didn't adopt those tactics when we should have, and now we're in a very um, precarious situation, it, you know, the chances of, um, of more people coming out alive versus the opposite, I just don't think the numbers look very good. So, yes, for, these, uh, for the Indians, moving like a swarm of bees, and they're coming at you at all different directions, and yet we don't have the means to... Um, or the measures to how to respond instantly, that to me is a huge setback for this, um, for the new United States. And hopefully in the aftermath of this um, battle, maybe there could be some things learned from it. But I do know that American troops were not trained to fight guerrilla style. I think it's fair to say that, that they weren't. They weren't trained. And guerrilla style being irregular warfare, you know, irregular folks, you know, you don't line up everybody in um, one line. Yes, you might want to get a volley, and that is have good enough firing range where you have three to five soldiers lined up. You know, you fire 100 yards away, at least 50 to 100 yards away where you can knock down the enemy uh, from a distance, and that's great. But if you really want to preserve your numbers, send a, send light infantry, send, send scouting parties. In other words... Scout out the enemy ahead of time. Fire upon them. See if that'll frighten them. Try to knock a couple of them down. Try to start reducing some numbers. And then when the time comes for a big battle, then you'll be prepared to go. So in other words, don't rely on major battles all the time because sometimes if you engage in too many major battles, in the long run, you're not going to have enough men to sustain in my opinion, you're not going to have enough men to really sustain um, a functioning army. That's that was the uh, that was the breaking point just before Nathaniel Greene arrived uh, to uh, South Carolina in the American Revolution when things were going wrong, really, really wrong for the uh, Southern Continental Army. So, if you ever uh, learn, if you, if any of you aren't familiar with um, about General Nathaniel Greene, definitely look him up and read about. Um, read about how he uh, incorporated guerrilla-style uh, warfare, which obviously kept uh, General Lord Charles Cornwallis in the Carolinas much longer. And by the time he got into Virginia, his army was not of, um, of the best strength. So anyways, uh, back to our focus is that, yes, simply the American troops were not trained to fight guerrilla-style irregular warfare. The Indians had surrounded the entire American camp from its left and right ends. How about this question? Is it fair to say once a battle plan got implemented that Indian warriors were most likely to fight on their own? Yes. Indian warriors preferred fighting on an individual level, which meant they were free from relying on orders that would have normally been given or administered by their chiefs. So yes, uh, chiefs had the power and the means to give orders uh, administer orders, but 
more often than not, uh, chiefs would only administer or give orders when they truly felt it was necessary. They had enough confidence in uh, their warriors below whom could take the fight into their own hands and do what was necessary uh, to preserve not only um, their, uh, their land, but preserve their customs and traditions, but really, in a sense, preserve their um, integrity, pride. In other words, preserve everything that they um, have worked for, everything they've uh, stood for, everything that would uh, keep out um, keep out those whom simply did not belong. And in this case, an invasive species being the U.S. Army, or even uh, settlers wanting to come in and make um, new establishments in the Northwest uh, Territory. So yes, Indians... Um, preferred uh, fighting on an individual level that simply did mean that they were free from relying on um, orders from above. Although Europeans did introduce Indians to guns, and that and I do know that because when the English arrived to uh, present-day um, what we now know as Jamestown, Virginia, where their first establish, uh, settlement establishment was, the uh, Indians, the settlers did introduce Indians to guns, because Indians had never um, known about muskets and rifles prior to the arrival of Europeans. I mean, they pretty much relied on bows and arrows to hunt uh, their their wild game, their deer, uh, buffalo, bear, uh, tur- um, turkey. I mean, nothing wrong with doing that, but the Indians certainly did find uh, that, that muskets and rifles were probably a little bit more effective than uh, bows and arrows. So, yes, although Europeans did introduce Indians to guns, being the muskets and the rifles, the Indians went about incorporating firearms by using them as individual means, meaning that uh, when warfare came about, they wouldn't get confined into uh, close groups, unlike European and American soldiers, whom were constantly having to depend upon orders from commanding officers. That's a big difference right there, folks. You know, for Europeans and even in America, there's nothing wrong with having a, a structural system where you have an inner circle being the officers and then you have the regular soldiers below whom have to take, whom adhere to orders by uh, the, the officers. But there are times where some things have to be, a little, I guess, a little bit more non-conventional if it means uh, survival. In this case, the Indians are not going to do what the Europeans and Americans do in terms of traditional customs. Indians are going to take matters into their own hands, and that is by fighting an irregular style campaign of fighting to get rid of those um, invasive peoples off their uh, native lands once and for all. Given American soldiers were dependent upon requests or orders from men above, wouldn't it be fair to say that the immediate game plan response for the Indians involved taking out officers and artillery with lightning force? And I would say that the answer is yes to that. Because when you start taking out officers, including um, artillery, whom are the soldiers, like the militiamen, whom are they going to um, turn to if their officers have been taken out? They're not going to be able to turn to anybody. And do you think the militiamen get along with the regulars? No, because uh, we learned from a previous podcast episode that the regulars 
hurled uh, insults at militiamen, and militiamen were, you know, disrespectful back to them. So if you have regulars and militiamen not getting along with one another, how do you think they're going to get along with one another when actual fighting takes place on a battlefield? And in this situation with Indians fighting irregular-style warfare, how in the world do you think that both of these parties are going to be able to mobilize a situation that's already out of control? They just aren't going to be able to do it. Now, the high rate of casualties amongst the troops, including the loss of officers, <laughs> sadly destroyed morale, which, con which contributed to soldiers' inabilities behind fighting as an entire cohesive unit. Yeah, when you lose um, officers, um, I could see how morale could be uh, gone very quickly. And when you don't have an officer or officers being able to guide you through these um, terrible circumstances, then how are you going to be able to even function? You just aren't. It's, it's very unfortunate, but this is what's happening now, folks. Now, whatever artillery was not seized by uh, the Indians, this artillery was placed on higher elevation, which resulted in uh, gunners firing too high to where the cannon um, shot being the uh, cluster of um, what we might think of as like grape shot, uh, clusters of um, grape balls all placed into like one canister, but when they are fired, they can go in all different directions and can knock out an enemy if they are, um, if the cannons themselves are placed in a proper setting, but in this case they're not. The cannon shot ends up hitting tree branches versus Indians. So, the improper placing of artillery, folks, has just made it even worse now. Uh, yes, it's great you can fire off um, cannons, but if you're not hitting your um, opponents, then the cannons are useless. And then it really does become, sadly, a waste of um, artillery. Uh, where was uh, General Arthur St. Clair in the midst of all the fighting? Well, for starters, he had fallen out of bed once the attack first began. Secondly, he was forced to wear a non-formal he was forced to wear non-formal attire. Why is that even important? Well, by wearing non-formal attire, this helped him hide his rank from the enemy and it ultimately uh, spared his life. Had uh, General Arthur St. Clair worn his uh, formal attire on this day, folks, he probably would have been gunned down immediately uh, by the Indians. And even if he survived, he would have more than likely, he, there's a good chance he could have even been taken as a, a prisoner of war. So General St. Clair had no access to horses e either. Two of them were killed. This prevented him from even mounting on one. So he went about setting off on foot to the battle. I can't imagine being in this guy's shoes, and all of a sudden, I don't even have time to put on my formal attire. Think about it. I don't have time to do all that I need to do before going out into the battle. It's almost as if uh, someone's dumped like a, a gal like a bucket of cold water on me, and it's it's hit me from all different angles. It's like, oh my gosh, I better get up. I better find out what's going on. But wait a minute, I don't even have time to put on all this other stuff then I guess I better just put on what I can in hopes that I can still make it out of here alive. So that's it. that's the mentality he's faced with now. 
General uh, St. Clair helped lead a series of bayonet charges, which did gain some momentum on the left flank. But per each advance that he uh, sought to make, or that was made, Indians disappeared into the woods. Ah, okay, so the Indians are disappearing into the woods. Now we seem to, we seem to think now that we've got some success. Okay, we pushed them into the woods. Now we can lead a, a great charge. Now we can really show the Indians that we've still got some fight in us and that we're going we're gonna to give them everything we got. Because now we can get them crouched uh, somewhere in the woods where they just won't have anywhere to uh, go. Well, here's the problem. It's one thing to um, force the enemy into the woods. It's another thing to take matters into your own hands, which uh, General St. Clair is now doing. And he is allowing his forces to go into the woods. The Indians are luring them. I don't know if they were had made sounds, but I think it's fair to say that by the Indians maybe not saying anything in terms of letting out a loud cry or a voice, they're going to play along their game and say, "Okay, just let them come in. Let them come in. Just think just let them have this moment of glory. But then we'll really show them who still has the glory, who still has the power once they get uh, halfway into the woods." We'll, we'll, we'll unleash another round of fury on him. Well, I can tell you this much, folks. Once um, the American troops did get themselves further inward into the woods, the Indians um, resumed their firing barrage. That's a, that's a price to pay right there. Other officers did lead bayonet charges as well, but in the end, only 30 men stood standing. I don't know how many men went in, folks, into the woods, but if only 30 men are standing, that should tell me right there that probably well over 100 men lost their lives. We probably could be looking maybe about 200 or more men who might have died or were severely wounded. But if only 30 men are still standing under... Lieutenant Colonel William uh, Dark's command. And the majority of the wounded soldiers, um, those uh, whom were wounded, uh, the majority of them whom were wounded, guess where they got sent into, folks? They got sent into the battlefield center ground for safety. Well, isn't where all, all that, um, where all the um, firing or um, loud cries uh, and the panic, all of that kind of took place? place around the center ground. Why are you sending wounded soldiers back into the center? Because if you do that, they might just run the risk of being uh, captured by the Indians. The Indians more than once uh, avoided bayonet charges and made their way twice during battle into American lodging quarters where they ravaged all tents and wagons at their disposal to scalping all those already dead, including those on the verge of dying. Okay, so I could be on the verge of dying. Do you think I'm going to die a, um, a normal death? No. No, the Indians aren't going to spare you. You could hold your hands up in the air and say, please forgive me, please forgive me for invading your territory. I'm so sorry that I did. Do you think any of these Indians are going to care? No. As horrible and barbaric as it sounds, folks, I mean, Indians and Europeans engaged in these kinds of things towards each other. 
This is no little house on the prairie, folks. So, yes, for those whom have, are on the verge of dying, they're not going to die a... Um, they're not going to die uh, by natural causes. Uh, they'll either die, well, I mean, you could either die from your wounds if you're lucky enough, but if not, you'll get scalped. In other words, they'll, the Indians are going to, um, they're, they're going uh, to kill the soldiers uh, in a very inhumane way. That, that's probably the, the briefest way and polite way to describe it. Uh, General Arthur St. Clair ordered an all-out retreat due to great risk of being totally annihilated. And he was smart. The surviving officers placed themselves up front to assure that soldiers still remaining um, escaped intact. The road per the U.S. Army's retreat was littered with debris by soldiers who fled for their lives. <laughs> yeah, it's like that old saying, you know, people will say, well, you know, such and such can be replaced, but you as an individual can't be replaced. Well, if you've left stuff behind that you know could be important... What's more important, the item left behind or you um, or your life? Well, I would say my life. If I could escape um, being, if I could escape uh, an onslaught of uh, Indian warriors, then I better take advantage of it. Because if I'm more concerned about going back and getting my um, objects, <laughs> good luck. I might not come out alive. Uh, around what time did General Arthur St. Clair's retreat begin on November 4th, 1791? How about around 9.30 a.m. in the morning, folks? You know, isn't it easy to think that this battle lasted all day? No. This battle, folks, um, started early in the morning. It was no more than three hours, just shy of three hours, this battle was, folks. That's how badly the um, First American Army uh, got routed. General uh, St. Clair's forces... For what was left of them marched nearly 30 miles back south to Fort Jefferson, which they arrived at sometime after sunset uh, come the uh, following day, or, or in a few days after. Now, there were some officers, believe it or not, who, um, who stayed behind at Fort Jefferson. I mean, after all, you do need to have some um, officers or soldiers stay behind, because if everybody left the fort... Who's going to protect it, and who's not to say that Indians um, south of where uh, south of the Wabash River would come in and um, destroy everything that Fort everything not only within Fort Jefferson but destroy everything on the outside, and then you have no Fort Jefferson. So Major um, Homtronk and first and his first regiment stood behind, or I should say, stayed back at Fort Jefferson. However, they were still able to make out gunfire sounds, which did prompt them to move onward nine miles, nine miles up the trail. But it was at that moment that Major Homtronk encountered the first set of survivors. Those survivors um, confirmed to uh, Major Homtronk that the army had been shredded, literally just annihilated, with no means of um, victory no means of even coming close to defeating the Indians. They had just been shredded. Very few uh, men escaped. So after hearing all this, I mean, if I was a Major Hom Trunks, <laughs> I know it's an odd last name, folks, <laughs> but I'm pronouncing it as best as I can. If I was in that uh, Major's um, shoes, I would not even think of playing with fire. I would turn around, 
and returned back to the confines of Fort Jefferson, which he did as uh, for means of uh, protection purposes. Do you want to risk losing any more men? Do you want to risk losing men who, who could die a very inhumane way by being uh, scalped? No. Preserve those forces that weren't, um, that didn't die, but at the same time, do what's necessary to protect Fort Jefferson. The U.S. Army supply losses were staggering, folks. It's bad enough that uh, that very few uh, soldiers survived this, but even the, uh, the Army supplies losses were staggering. Six cannons were lost, folks. Four ox teams, two baggage wagons with horses. Horses from Contractors um, Depot, or the Contractors Department, 316 pack horses fully geared, 384 standard tents, 1,200 muskets and bayonets were lost, numerous horsemen's swords and pistols to two medicine chests. You know, it's, bad. it's one thing to lose in a battle, but when you lose these supplies, folks, how you, you can't recover them. It's not like you could just make a phone call and say, we're out of medicine chests. Can you supply us with them as soon as possible? It doesn't work that way. So it's bad enough you lose men, but, but the logistics, the loss of the, of the supplies, that just doesn't happen overnight, that kind of recovery. The Indians uh, went as far as capturing official government papers. Think about it, folks. Why would... It just makes no sense to bring... What we might think of now is like classified documents. Maybe they didn't know any better. Maybe they thought they were going to be in for a slam-dunk victory. It was bad enough you lost. Now you've left behind government papers that have now made their way into the hands of the British Indian Department. Now the British know, they'll know more about what the, um, what the American government wanted to do. They'll also know that the American government was routed. The, the army was routed. But now we've got other secrets that we can learn about what the Americans are, were up to and what they might still be up to and what we might be able to do if we're on the side of the British, how to prevent them from um, making further encroachments into um, Indian territory along the Northwest. American troops whom were wounded arrived into Fort Jefferson come the early hours of November 5th, and the remainder of the army arrived into the fort three days later on the afternoon of November 8th. The arrival of survivors to those wounded ultimately resulted in large numbers of men consuming alcohol, leading to drunkenness, which brought about further breakdown in discipline to out-of-control desertion amongst soldiers whose enlistments were soon ready to expire. Well, if you're a soldier here, folks, you, don't, you obviously don't feel very good about what has happened. What do you have to live for now at this point? I don't know if many of these men really have a whole lot to feel good about, so what are they going to turn to that might lead to some kind of internal happiness? Drunkenness. When you don't have structure, I guess it's very. If you're not, if and if you're not careful, it doesn't take much to fall into a bad cycle. It doesn't take much to go down a wrong path, and do things that are simply unbecoming. And this is what's happening here, folks. This is, this is no uh, American army, and one has to wonder. My gosh, if George Washington was out there, could he have done things differently? Perhaps. 
but George Washington is the president of the United States. Is it fair to say that at some point down the road when Washington learns of this debacle that it's going to be a hard pill for him to swallow? Yes, it will, even for War Secretary Henry Knox. A commissioned officer, I found this to be really, really powerful, that a commissioned officer of lower rank status came to Fort Washington shortly uh, before either shortly before or just right after the debacle, but I'm thinking just before the debacle happened. But he did he was not able to um, make his way up to, uh, well, of course, remember, folks, the ultimate destination was Kekionga. And remember, the United States Army never made it to Kekionga. They were about 44 miles south of Kekionga. So they never made it to that village that they wanted to... Um, to conquer, but one office, one uh, lower rank, um, but one commissioned officer of lower rank status whom did come to Fort Washington did get an account of Indian warfare in terms of Indian style warfare, the, the guerrilla style. Who is this guy and why is he an important figure? Well, it just so happened that this man was an 18 year old named William Henry Harrison. William Henry Harrison, folks, keep that name in mind. But can you imagine being 18-year-old William Henry Harrison? His family is a very prominent family in Virginia. The Harrisons are related to the Randolphs. And, and how I know that is because uh, a, fe a fellow Virginian by Peyton Randolph, his wife was uh, Elizabeth Harrison. And it was either Elizabeth's brother or father, whom was a signer to the Declaration of Independence. It was either a Benjamin Harrison the fourth or the fifth. And I do know that um, a, another fellow named Benjamin Harrison, whom would go on to become president of the United States, was a grandchild of William Henry Harrison's. So there is an interesting connection with Harrison's in Virginia. Just how bad were the losses sustained by the U.S. Army? Just how bad were the losses, folks? Those killed were 37 officers to 593 enlisted men, folks. This far exceeded what happened the year before when Brigadier General Josiah Harmer tried to lead led that campaign into Kekionga and just over 260 men died. That was bad. This one takes the icing off the cake. 37 officers to 593 enlisted men were killed. 30, another 32 officers to 252 enlisted men were wounded. It's a very sad day for the United States, um, not just for the government, but really from a militaristic standpoint. Reports confirmed that only three out of 200 women escaped unharmed. Fifty women folks were killed and the remaining 147 got taken as hostages. The majority of women died inhumanely at the hands of Indians. Some escaped captivity, but died not long afterwards due to um, insufferable conditions endured while in um, Indian captivity. Others whom lived worked in Indian villages as a means of earning ransom money. In other words, if you... If you were a prisoner and you worked in an Indian village and you 
and your the goal was to earn enough ransom money that perhaps maybe over time the Indians would release you. But when they did release you, you would never probably come back the same person. You might be lucky if you lived another six months to a year after being released, but chances are, and most likely the majority of those who did over time, you know, yes, work on an Indian village and earned enough money to um, get ransom money to where they were released, their lives simply were just never the same. And I think it's fair to say that those who survived from a soldier standpoint, their lives weren't the same either, too. So it just goes to show you folks that, um, you know, for one, war is not a game, and two, war does leave um, bad scars, not just for those whom are victorious, but really for the defeated. But for those whom are victorious, the Indians, they've sent a message to the American government that, you know, look, you can try all you want, but we know how you people fight. You people can't fight like we do. We know how to fight our own war, and by knowing how to fight our own war, we can come at you at all different angles. We can mow you down when you don't even know it. So yes, bring your numbers. Bring your officers of rank, of the highest rank. But just because you have those people, it doesn't mean that they have what it takes to go up against um, forces who's, um, who whom have adapted over the years to irregular style fighting. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, podcast uh, segment episode, and when I'm on the air again next, we're going to talk about uh, recriminations and reversal. Thank you for your time as always, and thank you for being such ardent listeners, and wherever you may live, continue to stay safe. Take care for now.